Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Ellen Lee Beter. Welcome to Think Sustainability on 2SCR, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. You've heard of sharing your car and sharing your spare room. What about sharing your kitchen? To do what? To cook, of course. (laughs) A little later on in the program, you'll hear about a way to cook and deliver to hungry consumers that doesn't break the bank. But first... A world standard suggests we need at least 20, maybe 30% of the marine environment worldwide fully protected from any exploitation. Overfishing is a huge thing worldwide, but also pollution, shipping and all those sorts of things. It turns out we have less than 1% protected. Not 30%, 1%, less than 1%. Australia does a bit better. We have around 10%, but it's still a third of the gold standard. This is Dave Booth. Dave is a professor in marine ecology from the University of Technology, Sydney. So in terms of that 20 to 30%, yeah, a minimum. Um, to have that protected at that percentage, why? why? Why have that much? Is that just to continue life ongoing? Like- well, yeah, obviously in a perfect world, 100% would be protected. But we are humans, we live here, we exploit the sea, you know, we're here, so we have a footprint. 100% might be this amazingly ideally impossible goal, but you need enough, and, and there's been various papers written on the exact amount, which you know falls between 20 and 30%, where they feel there's enough habitat to support fish, for instance, that are able to get old enough to breed and not be caught to produce babies that can populate the rest of the ocean. It's sort of like, you know, if you have a forest, you'll often have an area that's protected for old growth trees, there's the seed trees, and even in forestry, they'll protect some of these trees, knowing that they produce babies for the rest of the the area. These protected marine areas have a name. They're called marine parks, and they kind of work in a similar way to the ones on land. On land, a national park usually is prohibition. You can't, well, sort of can't hunt in national parks, but the animals and plants are protected there. In the ocean, our marine parks in Australia in particular are zoned, so we'll have a small area of that park is a bit like a terrestrial national park, but most of the park, 80 or 90% of it, is open to the very thing you're potentially trying to prevent, like fishing. It seems a bit weird, right, that you'd have this area of the ocean protected from damages, yet up to 90% of that area is open to things like fishing. You'll hear exactly why that is in a second. But first, how many marine parks are there in numbers around Australia? It's difficult to say because the Commonwealth, there are a couple of dozen. Each state was required to have a certain number of marine parks to fulfil a, a nationwide network. Uh, we're, I think we're one short, and, and amazingly, we don't have one in the Sydney area. Not that amazingly, because it's hard. There's a lot of opposition, and people are worried about not being able to fish, etc., etc. So there's about, you know, in the less than 100 uh, small and large ones within state waters, and less than 40 in Commonwealth waters. Altogether, this means about one-third of Australian waters are marine parks, but only 10% of these are fully protected. This is because different marine parks have different protection methods in place. Some parks will fully prohibit any sort of activity, 
whether this be recreational fishing, commercial fishing, or ships coming in and out of those waters, whereas others are a little more open. Each marine park has its own story. For instance, uh, just north of Sydney, we have the Port Stephens Marine Park. Dave was on the managing committee for zoning the Port Stephens Park, which essentially means he worked with a number of different industries to mark out exactly where it would lay and what would happen in the area. I think most of them were fishers of some sort. There were a couple of scientists, etc. Meaning these were some of the other parties involved in the zoning talks. Um, we knew we had to give 20% to total protection. A figure that is pretty standard for areas under full protection, but in Dave's opinion, is still a little low. And so at that particular park, there's some, an island called Broughton Island, which is uh, a place where protected grey shark stop. It was also a place that was quite, had quite an active fishing industry. And then you go into Port Stephens, and it's a very popular spot. There's a lot of people live there these days, but there's some magnificent underwater scenery there. Port Stephens is a prime example of a marine park that has environmental, economic and social interests at play. But the way those interests are balanced, Dave says, is becoming harder to manage. So it used to be the environment was number one, and if there was a fisheries benefit, that was secondary. If there was an economic benefit, that was secondary. In New South Wales, there's been a move, which does concern me, that the environment is just one of the three pillars they look at. In fact, in New South Wales, uh, a crazy thing happened a few years ago where all of a sudden, without any prior warning or advice from scientists, the government decided to open up some previously fully protected small marine reserves. Now, the problem with that is, If there's a concerted fishing evidence in an area like that, you can lose the benefits of a protected area within days or hours or weeks, but it takes years to get it back again. Uh, Marine protected areas often take a decade for the benefits to be accrued, just because fish, for instance, grow very slowly. Why has that mentality kind of changed in New South Wales? Well, there's lots of political reasons. They are a mecca for ecotourism, for instance. So, yes, you can get an economic benefit by having a really intact marine environment, which isn't overfished or whatever. Also, when they've done studies of the wealth of the ocean, it's a huge multi-multi-billion dollar part of our Australia's wealth. And that includes the oil and gas industry, which is a huge industry, export industry for Australia. So all of these industries are out there, but you know, any smart businessman knows they have to sustain their industry. And so... You know, if we're taking away from the ocean by putting our industries in, we need to put back. A governmental review is currently underway, re-evaluating marine park areas around the country. This isn't the first review. There have, in fact, been a series of them. The Howard government actually started a lot of this, this zoning for marine parks many years ago. Then the Labor government came in and they did their bit. And in 2012... Uh, after a lot of stakeholder engagement, there was put forward a proposal. Um, the next government came in, the Liberal government, and they sort of scuttled that plan and said, oh, it was way too political, we'll have our own. And so they had a big scientific review, the Commonwealth Marine Review, and uh, what unfortunately happened was there are some issues with eroding of the protection values that we thought was would happen in 2012. So so when you, when you say erosion, you kind of just mean like the zones are becoming smaller? That That's right. So instead of a particular area being total protection, it's now habitat protection, which sounds good, but it means you can go and fish there. And fishing is a major threat in some areas that we need to be careful of. Can you personally have a strong relationship with the fishing industry? Well... 
On the other hand, we do a lot of work with sustainable seafood. I happen to love seafood, and I also think uh, done properly and sustainably, seafood is a wonderful thing to eat. Apart from the health benefits, the ethical benefits are there because the beauty of a wild fishery industry is these fish have been free until the moment of capture. They haven't been penned. They haven't been stuffed full of hormones. They are wild animals. So you're catching a wild animal. If you can catch it sustainably and carefully, how better to get your food? The other issue is where these uh, no fully protected areas are. They're often in deeper water, and really that's important, but the real threats are in shallow water. So when I mentioned residual areas before... Residual areas kind of means the leftover areas, and in this case, areas that also have little commercial value. So what Dave is saying is that they can plonk a full protection label on a marine area, say, in deeper waters but that's not protecting shallow water marine systems that need our full attention. What's the best result from your end here? Well, I'd like to see some of our concerns as marine biologists and and social scientists involved, uh, interested in protecting the ocean, take into consideration. And maybe some of the changes that the latest review has suggested, which to me erode a bit that protection, are are reversed. It seems kind of funny when you're asking about marine ecosystems, which are heavily linked to the science that they wouldn't take your opinion firsthand. Right. Well, one of the the saddest things you work at as a scientist is that evidence often doesn't matter. Quite often, there's other points of view and and it's it's a little bit political. There might be a a certain political party has a member in that area that has constituents that don't want a marine park. And, you know, it's, it's quite sad in a way and quite a shock to scientists that there's not as much room for facts and evidence as there should be in the process. Dave Booth, Professor of Marine Ecology from the University of Technology, Sydney. You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER 107.3. So you've heard about Uber, right, Ellen? Mm. Have you used it? Of course. Have you used Uber Eats yet? No, I haven't. Uber Eats, for those of you who might not know, is essentially a car delivering food to you. It's just like the pizza delivery, but with like 50 more options. So Uber and Uber Eats is just one part of the sharing economy. And we're about to talk to a guy who is opening up the sharing economy, but in the sharing of kitchens. This is James Jordan, the co-founder of something called Sprout Kitchens. And James has an extensive background in the hospitality industry. And if you're a Sydney cider, you might have seen James as one of those delivery guys riding around with a box of hot food on the back of his bike. The demand for that food delivery has created this whole new industry where you see people like Deliveroo and Uber Eats um, come into the market where they basically are a mail delivery business. They don't cook the food, they just own the delivery riders and they are the ones that you see riding up and down the city. They're the ones that are really employing the majority of people. And then the restaurants now that employ their own delivery drivers are looking at maybe switching over because they can have the economy of scale, they can have the efficiency of the deliveries and um, the restaurants don't have to manage the staff themselves. Is that just along the lines of, say, a restaurant like in the inner city already has their own kind of like employed bike riders, but then just getting rid of that and reaching out to the bike riders of like Uber Eats or Deliveroo and being like, hey, why don't we do this? You're contracted to us and then you'll ride it out for us. Is that how it would work? Yep, exactly. So um, 
the delivery guys and Uber Eats guys are pretty aggressively competing to sign up these sort of restaurants um, and get them on their platform. But for the restaurants, that's exactly it. They just want to have their brand and their menu on the platform. And then when that, when an order comes through, they can prepare it. And then they just have to put it on the on the counter and one of the one of the delivery guys will come and pick it up and that's that's all I have to worry about. And to Sprout Kitchens though, this is not necessarily just about the delivery, it's having kitchen space for people to rent out for their own means. Hmm. Why did you think that that was something that might be that might work itself well into this market? Well, based on my previous business, trying to do a food delivery business in multiple locations, we basically solved the problem of commercial kitchen space by using existing cafes and restaurants at nighttime. And that's how we managed to have um, three outlets in in a suburb as opposed to just one. So from that experience, I knew that using existing kitchen space is a good way to to flip the model of uh, food delivery. So instead of having a, a fixed cost of rent that you're having to recoup every month, you actually have a variable cost where you're just paying for the space as you're using it. In that way, you can rent space for only the times that you're profitable. So Friday, Saturday, Sunday night. From that knowledge and also seeing, as you mentioned, the explosion of the food delivery industry in Australia, um, it was a perfect opportunity to put a stop to Deliveroo and actually start um, aggregating that space and, um, and providing it to these businesses that are looking to expand. What are these spaces? Where are they? So at the moment, because we're focusing on the food delivery, they're obviously most popular in the evenings. So our core customer from the supply side is the cafes. So we look for really good quality cafes that have really good menus and good sized kitchens, but might be closed around three or four o'clock in the afternoon. So we will go then and um, and sign them up and help them to utilize that space through till 11 or 12 o'clock at night when someone traditionally wouldn't go and eat dinner there. But um, because of the delivery aspect, someone else can come in and have their brand on, on a delivery or an Uber Eats platform and they can then utilize that space. When you go into this kitchen space, you have access to everything that they have in the kitchen? Yep. So they provide all the equipment. Um, you can use all the utensils, all the basics of a kitchen, like oil or cleaning products are all provided as well. And then you just get the keys and it's good to go. How expensive is it? Depends on the size of the kitchen and what sort of equipment they have. But it ranges from about 100 to 250 a day. And that's for about eight hours. And I guess they'd be benefiting from that too, not only just in terms of making a profit off of it, but... I guess, people seeing that the space is being used over the course of like the entire weekend. Yeah, there's lots of benefits other than just the money. So obviously, it's great for them because by doing that, we can basically cover their rent or a majority of it, which is huge for a cafe, which is operating on really small, small margins. But what we can also do is, um, as you said, help with the security. So if there's someone in the kitchen space at nighttime, that's a benefit for them. Um, You know, someone's there and managing the space. This is kind of one initiative that's really found like a hole in a market here, which is now branching out in all these different things in the circular economy. You know, you've got like Airbnb, you've got Uber already, now it's Uber Eats. More of these things are kind of becoming democratized. Yeah, it's really around ownership. Like um, people now don't have to own anything. It's it's great. But do you think, how sustainable do you think that system is? Um, in terms of long-term sustainability, um, I can actually see it 
forming you know a bit of a viral loop where the cafe owners which at the moment are struggling um, we can help them cover their costs so that they can then invest more money into their space and then they can make better space um, and then that space is more valuable to people to to utilize and so maybe instead of just using it at night time it can be used in the early hours of the morning as well if you add some other equipment in there so then that adds more money to to the owner and they can help to maintain and use better space um, so it basically is reducing the the number of you know, mediocre spaces there are around and really focusing on, on key places that can generate better revenue and better recover their costs. So from a perspective of existing business owners, um, I think it is helping them to to maintain and sustain their business. Um, for for new businesses that are coming into the market, obviously it's a totally new solution, which means they don't have to buy more equipment. They don't have to pay for a fit out. Um, so it's reducing the cost in terms of sustainability of equipment as well. In terms of for you as Sprout Kitchens, yeah. you said there that you don't have ownership though. Is that a concern for you that you don't have this zone kind of like margins off to be like, this is our space and will always be our space? No, I don't think so. Um, I think we've got you know ambitions to be a, a global marketplace and we basically just manage the transaction so we can just allow these people to connect when um, they haven't been able to connect before, whether it's because they don't have the time or whether they don't have the security and the trust. We're not really concerned about focusing on specific areas. We're more just concerned with um, connecting people and, and being the trusted brand and platform in that space. I find what interests me as well is how is it different for you being something that's kind of all over the place how do you brand that as opposed to one specific business that is lodged in one area? Yeah, I think um, for Sprout, it, it's more about the business-to-business side of things. So we are concerned with branding ourselves towards other cafes and restaurants so that they are aware of us and they know of our business. Our branding will not be very customer-focused, but the brands that are using our platform their brand is everything because they're not they don't have that retail shop front anymore. So that part of their identity is now taken out. So they have to build a really strong brand identity and online presence so that people can still connect with them even though there's no physical space. What about for, I guess, business owners who are stuck in the old way of doing things? They've got their restaurant here. They're not necessarily looking to branch out, develop some sort of cooperation with these sort of initiatives like what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Do you think that they'd last if they don't kind of jump on this bandwagon? It's funny because it's you'd expect it to be um, you know one end or the other, but what we've actually found talking to cafes and restaurants is it's the gap in the middle that businesses that we find are not interested or that potentially are going to fail. So the ones at the really low end of the market say they're you know not very nice places, not very not very good location. The very bottom end are always interested in in joining because they need the extra revenue. Um, but also what we didn't expect was the ones at the top end as well because they're usually run by really experienced business owners. They're really savvy in, in technology and business and they can understand how this can help them solve the problem, which is utilizing their space. So it's actually the ones in the middle which we find um, you know, a sort of mum and dad style businesses and I think they are going to continue to struggle. Um, and why, why do you think that they are resistant to this idea? Uh, I think it's, it's something that's quite unique to... To Australia and other um, other places like America, where we have this lifestyle 
design, this lifestyle business, where they basically want to come in and work seven till three and then walk away. And that's basically their aim is to pay themselves a wage. And I think that sort of lifestyle is the reason why. They don't want to take on any other risk that could jeopardize that. And they don't really want any other money. That's just their job. Um, so they're quite, quite happy, content. And that could have been, say, 20 years ago before we kind of entered in this digital proliferation era. Like, Mm. that could have been a sustainable model. And they, who knows now, maybe they'd still be able to do that. But do you think that it seems less likely that those sorts of businesses, that business lifestyle, is becoming a little harder to make sustainable? Yeah, definitely. I mean, even even back 20 years ago, the margins are still very small on that type of business. Um, you're, they're really looking to pay themselves as an employee of their own business. So just taking food delivery, for example, um, it's still only 2 or 3% of the market share at the moment. Um, and as you said, we're seeing so many of these bike riders around, that percentage is only going to increase, which is obviously eating into the margins of these other restaurants. So um, yeah, I think it is as these new models become more proliferant, it's going to be difficult. James Jordan, co-founder of Sprout Kitchens. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology, Sydney and 2SER. For more information, head to 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability. We're also available on your favourite podcast app. So all you have to do is pop Think colon Sustainability in there and press subscribe. I'm Ellen Leibeter. I'm Jake Morecambe. See you next week. Listener.